Hey, y'all can remain standing for uh, the reading of God's Word. I'm Marcus, and I'm going to be reading from John chapter 2, uh, the Gospel of John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Uh, so give us a second to scroll or turn there. John 2, starting in verse 1, reads, On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, They don't have any wine. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. And when the head waiter tasted the water, after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, Everyone sets out the fine wine first, then, after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. This is, uh, this is going to be a fun one, all right? And I have no doubt that some of you or someone here or someone who listens to the podcast eventually is going to say, I just really don't like this. And I want you to know I'm completely comfortable with that and simultaneously completely uncomfortable with it. And it, this message, this uh, the whole value have some fun, but this message in particular, as I was preparing this morning and looking back over my notes and making some changes and uh, just adding a few thoughts, it reminded me when, I, when Sarah and I, our family went as pastor, when I went as pastor at Southern Hills Baptist Church in Bolivar, Missouri. It's a church that needed to be revitalized. It was, uh, it was growing older, no children. Uh, by the way, we're celebrating at Red Hill, a couple of babies on the way, so let's go. Let's go. You talk about having fun. You talk about having fun. I, I, I read something this week that was like, um, people have a hard time believing the resurrection, and they have a harder time believing the miracle of the resurrection than they do the miracle of a birth. And it shouldn't be that way, because isn't it easier to understand that there was a thing, and then it was gone, and now it's back, than there was nothing, and now there's something it's, it's easier to believe in the resurrection, the miracle of the resurrection, the miracle of a birth, a whole new person, two whole new people are, are arriving soon to Red Hill. So we're super excited for that, celebrating with those families. But when we went, um, a little background, um, this church had a power structure that is known in Baptist circles as deacons. And uh, deacons in the Bible are servants, but oftentimes deacons in the church are power brokers, and that was definitely the case in this church with a couple of guys particularly um, who made it very clear to me in the very first meeting that I had with them that they very much did not like me, and uh, they didn't come to the meeting with all the other deacons when I sat and met with them before the, uh, before the uh, church called me as their pastor and part of the interview process. These two guys wanted to have their own meeting with me, which immediately was like, all right, because you know, when people request a private meeting with you, when they could just meet with you in a group, it means because they want to tell you good things, and they really like you and want to affirm you as a person and all the things that you believe in, right? And so <clears throat> I go into this meeting, and, uh, and this gentleman, he sat down with me, and he was like, um, 
What would you say if someone said they were offended by the way that you dressed when you preach? And I was like, well, I know all grievances are personal, right? That's something, I don't know if you know that or not, but all grievances are personal. If someone has a grievance with you, it's personal. It's not hypothetical. Something happened in their life. Something happened in their history. Something happened in their present, their past, or they're anticipating it will happen in their future. They don't like the way that you're behaving because it upsets something inside of them. And so I just you know, came up on the fly with the only thing I could think of, which was nobody has ever said that to me. And he said, well, I'm offended by the way that you dress. And then we got to have a good dialogue about how he placed value on the relationship by being honest about a concern. And I was grateful for that. He honored me by telling me the truth. It's a great honor in love to tell someone the truth. He gave me some honor by telling me the truth. I don't know that it was loving necessarily. And then, and then he said, um, okay, once, once I had exhausted you know, his patience on that answer, he said, well, what would you say if someone said you tell too many jokes in your sermons? And I said, no one has ever told me that, right? No one has ever said, I don't like laughing. Please stop telling me jokes. And he said, well, I think you tell too many jokes. And I knew right then we were going to be friends, right? I knew it was going to be a good relationship. But there was one particular Sunday morning where I woke up, I started getting dressed, and it, it was the day. It was just, it was time. And I put on jeans. Now, have any of you grown up in a traditional church where, like, you had to get dressed up for church Sunday morning best, you know, like, put on your nicest gear because Jesus deserves our best, which was the argument that this deacon made with me. Don't you think God deserves our best? And as only, I think, you know, it, like in, tr in very typical Raiden fashion, I'm sitting with this deacon interviewing for the job, and he says, don't you think God deserves our best? And I said, can I ask you, what kind of pajamas do you wear? And he looked at me sort of like some of you, some of you guys are looking at me right now, like what a weird question. I said, what kind of pajamas do you wear? He's like, I don't understand. What do you, like, what do you mean? I said, I'm just wondering what kind of jammies you're rocking. And he goes, I... What does this have to do with anything? I said, well, don't you think God deserves our best when we sleep too? Like, shouldn't, if, if he deserves our best on Sunday morning, doesn't he deserve our best on Friday night? Doesn't he deserve our best on Tuesday afternoon? Doesn't he deserve our best whether we're awake or asleep, whether we're in country or out of country? I mean, should, you know, should NBA players be wearing three-piece suits and loafers? It was a commercial. Jordan did it once. You know, he, 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 rocked, the, he rocked the loafers in one of the commercials. And can't we do something better than just the external appearance of things? Anyway, I put on the jeans and Sarah said, today's the day, huh? And I said, today's the day. We're ripping off the Band-Aid. And I, just, I want you guys to know, as far as the value of having some fun is concerned, today's the day. We're ripping off the Band-Aid. If what I'm presenting today doesn't fit with your understanding of what a church is going to be, I bless you. And I tell you, there's still room for you here with us. But as long as I'm the lead pastor, I'm going to be pushing for this. And so if this is something that's a fundamental value to me, I invite you to come and talk to me. Come and challenge me. We'll open God's word together. We'll try to understand him better together. And I promise you that I will at least laugh during the conversation. I can't promise that you will, but I know that I will. Did you know that the physiological study of laughter has its own name? It's called gelatology which is not the study of jello or gels because it's spelled G-E-L-O-T-O-L-O-G-Y. And we know that certain parts of the brain are responsible for certain human functions. For example, emotional responses are the functions of the brain's largest region, the frontal lobe. That's where your emotions come from. But research, uh, researchers have learned that the production of laughter is involved with various regions, uh, regions of the brain, 
While the relationship between laughter and the brain is not fully understood, researchers are making some progress. For example, one researcher traced the pattern of brainwave activity in subjects responding to humorous material. I find there's nothing better about a joke than having to explain it, and this isn't even a joke. I'm just gonna be explaining how laughter works, and so I fully expect everyone to be you know, completely engrossed in the material. Subjects were hooked up to an EEG, and their brain activity was measured when they laughed. In each case, the, ba- uh, the brain produced a regular electrical pattern. Within four-tenths of a second of exposure to something potentially funny, an electrical wave moved through the cerebral cortex, the largest part of the brain. If the wave took a negative charge, laughter resulted. If it maintained a positive charge, no response was given. This is what researchers discovered. During the experiment, here's the specific activities that they noticed in the brain. The left side of the cortex, the layer of cells that covers the entire surface of the forebrain, analyzed the words and structure of the joke. The brain's frontal lobe, which is involved in social emotional responses, became very active. The right hemisphere of the cortex carried out the intellectual analysis required to get the joke. Brainwave activity then spread to the sensory processing area of the occipital lobe, the area on the back of the head that contains the cells that process visual signals. Stimulation of the motor sections evoked physical responses to the joke. That's what happens when you love all of you in, a, in four tenths of a second, a negative charge fired through your brain if you just laughed. Boom, and your whole brain was involved in causing you to laugh. But you know what's weird? Neither biologists, nor medical doctors, nor philosophers, nor psychiatrists can tell us why we laugh. Why do we laugh? It's this weird thing that we all do. We start laughing, and guess what? It's, it's sort of like a yawn. When one person starts laughing, other people will start laughing. And if you don't believe me, go on YouTube today and search this. A talk show that brought on people who have weird laughs. And you know what happens is, these people with these really weird laughs are brought on to a stage with an interviewer and he begins saying something funny and one of them starts laughing and then the other ones start laughing and then the whole audience is laughing and then you are laughing. No one even told a joke. We're just all laughing. We're all Michael Scott. We love inside jokes. We hope to be a part of one someday. Every one of us wants to be in on the joke. There's something social about it. There's something that's bonding about it. There's something that's communal about it. So biologists, psychiatrists, philosophers, none of them can tell us why we laugh, but a good theologian can tell you why we laugh. Because Psalm 2.4 says, the one who sits enthroned in the heavens laughs. Now, it's talking about God laughing at people who think they're going to overthrow him. He's laughing at the people who are scoffing at his existence and at his power. But he's laughing. You know why you laugh? Because God laughs and you are made in his image. Karl Barth, a great theologian in his own right, says that laughter is the closest thing to the grace of God. You know, chickens don't sit around and tell why did the human cross the road jokes. Woodpeckers don't tell knock-knock jokes. Both of those feel like an incredible missed opportunity, by the way. Just the material is there all day in so many directions for them. 
But we sit around and we tell jokes. We'll pay enormous amounts of money for someone to tell us jokes. We look for entertainment that will make us laugh. I've never been on a dating site, but my understanding is that one of the preeminent requirements for a potential mate is a good sense of humor. Someone who knows how to laugh. Last week, I mentioned that I think heaven gets better and better and better and better and better the longer that you're there. And I was having a conversation with Sarah about it because truthfully, that wasn't in my notes. That was just something I was just feeling. And I, I thought about it a lot more over the last week and thought about it again this morning. And um, this last week, I, I got to go up and see Nick and Aaron Volkening and the kids. And they have three kids under the age of five. Sarah reminded me that we didn't have three kids that were five and under. We had three kids that were three and under at one time. And again, I just want to publicly apologize for that. Um, I mean, it's turned out great for us, right? It's turned out great for us. But um, it, was, uh, it was sort of like a circus that was a one-ring circus, and every act was happening at the same time. You know what I'm saying? Like when you have little kids. But there's a great thing about children. If you get a book that they like, like I used to read The Gruffalo, the book The Gruffalo. It's really a great book. And, and I would do it as a rap. And... I would read it, and as soon as I was done with the Gruffalo, my kids would say, do it again. And so I do it again, and then my kids say, do it again. Read me the book again, and so I read the book again. And then like, read me the book again, and so I read the book again. Read me the book again, and so I read the book again. Read me the book again, and I'm like, I'm gonna pick a different book, or we're doing something else. Like, I can't keep doing this. You put them on your knee, and you bounce them. Like, you know, this is, this is the horsey ride. You do the horsey ride. They get off, what do they wanna do? They wanna do the horsey ride again. You can never exhaust the joy of a child. It's impossible. And the exact same experience for them fills them with brand new joy. It never grows old. It never gets tired. I think heaven's like that. I, I don't know that I can say theologically that it increases in its goodness, but I can say that God never gets tired of seeing the sunrise. It's never a mundane, ordinary thing. It's a delight. It's a delight. This morning we're talking about the value, have some fun. And I want to say, I really believe that God is not just interested in giving us heaven someday. He wants to bring God's kingdom to earth in the everyday experiences of his children. Just in the book of John, just a few examples. By the way... <laughs> I, when you had a hand broke her phone, I was like, I have hidden your word in my lock screen that I might not sin against thee. <laughs> so that's thinking. So. Right, some of you got a negative charge. Some of you, the charge remained positive. That's, from now on, if you all don't laugh at my jokes, just internally, I won't reference it. Hopefully I won't reference it ever again out loud. But if you don't laugh at my jokes internally, I'm going to think it's because you are brain damaged. Your brain is not wired properly because it was a good joke. Listen, I laugh at my own jokes. You know why? Because I am not brain damaged. And I think they're funny. That's why I laugh at them. Laugh first, laugh loudest, laugh longest. John 4, 14. Look at what John 4, 14 says if you scroll there. Whoever drinks the, the water that I give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well or a spring of water springing up in him for eternal life. Jesus says, when I satisfy you 
It's not a satisfaction that's put on the shelf and saved for someday. It is a satisfaction that's like dropping a minto into a bottle of Diet Coke, and it is explosive, welling up inside of you, producing life. In John chapter 10 and verse 10, a very famous passage that you're probably all familiar with, a thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so that they might have life and have it in abundance. Not just life, but life in abundance. John 13, 34, Jesus says, sorry, it's sticking a little bit. I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. John 15, 8. In John 15, 8, Jesus says, My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. John 15, 11, Jesus said, I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. And in John 17, 25, and 26, Jesus prays, Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you, and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them, and will continue to make it known, so that the love you have loved me with may be in them, and I may be in them. In John 4, Jesus says he's creating an everlasting fountain of everlasting life. In John 10.10, he says that he came to give us an abundance of life, an effervescent life, an overflowing, springing up, exploding out kind of life. In John 13.34, he tells us that we are supposed to love one another. Our lives should be marked by loving one another. In John 15.8, he says that our lives should be bearing fruit and thereby authenticating our discipleship are authenticating, verifying that we are followers of him because our lives are so alive. Like my life is so alive that it is bearing fruit. In John 15, 11, his joy, his joy will be in you and your joy will be complete. Your joy will be complete. In John 17, 25 and 26, God's love and Jesus himself will fill us. And I wanna say this. Life is an incredibly serious thing. Life's an an unbelievably serious thing filled with pain and trauma and betrayal and loss and fear and anxiety, injustices, sicknesses. Life is an incredibly serious thing, but living doesn't always have to be an incredibly serious thing. Have you ever been to a funeral? Some of the best laughs of my whole life have been at a funeral, sitting with people, remembering a loved one, laughing together. I want you to consider, we are glory and we are dust. We're the crowning element of creation, made just a little lower than angels and in the very image of God but there's nothing that makes us laugh louder and longer than a really good fart. (laughs) Glory and dust, that's what we are, glory and dust. The very breath of God breathed into our lungs and farts. 
right. <laughs> that last little boy said, I still think it was you. <laughs> uh, glory and dust. Can you imagine? Made in the image of God. And we fart. With that, let's turn our attention to the text. Yeah, see, some of you guys are brain damaged. That was actually funny. <laughs> Sorry, I said I wasn't going to say it, and I said it, and I apologize. God will forgive me. <laughs> I want to be friends with that little dude in the, in the bright yellow Nike shirt. That laugh is amazing. I love that laugh. All right, John chapter 2, Jesus' first recorded miracle. The, the first four verses on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana, in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What does that have to do with you and me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. So the setting here is that Jesus has begun calling his disciples. This miracle is not in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's not in those gospels, probably because Matthew hadn't been called yet. Um, so it's only found here in the Gospel of John. Can I ask you, have you ever been to a wedding? Anybody, any, everybody been to a wedding? You been to a wedding? Yeah, they're, pre they're pretty fun things. Uh, Marcus and Brooks' wedding, I really enjoyed Marcus and Brooks' wedding. Uh, Paul came wearing uh, tissue box shoes, which was just, it was an epic move. It was such a baller move, and I know, I know that it made his wife so proud to be standing next to him and pictured in photographs with him. Uh, yeah, wedding's a party. It's so much fun. Have you ever experienced Middle Eastern hospitality? Middle Eastern hospitality. It's next level hospitality. Sarah and I are friends with some uh, folks from Egypt. We went to their house to have coffee the other night, a few weeks ago, and they had coffee, and his wife had made like several different treats, and they had put out on a tray uh, chips with uh, all these different dips and salsas and things, and, and they kept bringing more food out. It was like, this is just supposed to be coffee. Like, we're just hanging out, but they, they have to bestow honor on you. They just keep giving more and more honor. You ever been to a third world country where they want to give you gifts? Some of you guys are going to get to go to Guatemala with us. You go to Guatemala, you build a chicken coop for someone who has nothing. <laughs> Like they, they don't have anything. They have nothing. They're living in a hovel. They're living in a lean-to little shack of a home with nothing. And you go and you construct these, uh, you, you know, you build these uh, containers for the chicks and the chickens and you take it out to this little house, I guess, and you present it to them and you're giving them these baby chicks and the food that they'll need, starting a small business for them. And they come out and they, they bring out invariably every time some kind of a little snack, like, you know, like the small bags of chips or cookies, or they'll bring out a big bag of chips, and they bring out a two liter of some kind of soda and a bunch of small wax or paper cups. And, and, and they want to share with you. Out of, the, out of the abundance of what they have, they want to share with you. Have you sat at the table of the poor and been offered a feast, sitting down and knowing what you're eating cost them probably everything that they had to, to, to live on. I have. It's a uniquely American thing, I think, to believe that the greatest honor is to receive honor. Something that the ancient civiliz uh, civilizations understand is this, that the greatest honor one can experience is the opportunity to honor others. 
They understand something we do not. There's a great honor in giving honor to someone. There's a great honor in saying, I want to honor you. This couple, this newlywed couple and their families are in danger of experiencing great shame. They are Middle Eastern. They're in Cana of Galilee. They are having a party at their home and they have run out of wine. They have nothing to provide for their guests. This made me think about the difference between humility and humiliation. They're not the same thing. Humility is a voluntary act of putting off pride. Humiliation is the violent assault on a person's dignity and worth. Humility leads to confession. Humiliation leads to shame. And isn't it wonderful that the one who robes us in his righteousness, the one spoken about as the one who would crush the head of the serpent when the curse is delivered, the one who provides the skins of clothing to cover the shame of Adam and Eve, shows up for his first miracle where people are exposed and about to be ashamed. Mary shows up on the scene. In verse three, it says, when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. I, this is such a simple thing. It's such a simple thing. She just presents the problem. She doesn't offer all of the potential solutions. And this insight made me think about my own prayer life. I don't, I listen, I don't know what your prayer life is like, but here's what my prayer life is like. 0.5 seconds on the problem. Now, God, let me give you all of your alternate solutions. Like, here are all the alternatives for how you can solve the problem. You can do this, and if that's not your will, you can do this, and if that's not your will, you can do this, and if that's not your will, you can do this, and if that's not your will, you can do this, and if none of those things are your will, then we trust you to execute your will and hopefully to give us what we want, and even if you don't do any of those things, we know you're going to do something, and we'll thank you and praise you and glorify you for that. I'm not saying that that's necessarily bad, but I am saying nobody knew Jesus better on earth than his own mom. That's just the nature of being a mom. And she shows up on the scene and she does not tell Jesus how to solve her problem. And I feel like this is good prayer advice. If not for you, it's good prayer advice for me. That maybe when I come on the scene with the omnipotent, omniscient creator and sustainer of the whole universe, maybe, just maybe, just maybe, I should spend a little bit more time pressing what the need is than trying to give him all of his possible ways to solve the need, to meet the need, to just say, here's what the need is. I spend more time giving God his options than I do giving him my needs. And in verse four, Jesus says, what does that have to do with you and me, woman? Jesus asked, my hour has not yet come. This is not a pejorative term. When he says woman, he's not, he's not being critical of his mother. In fact, later in the gospel of John, John 19, 25 through 27, when he's hanging on the cross, he says to John, man, behold this woman, woman, behold this man. Mary went and lived with John from that point forward, if not before, taking care of her. But there is some distance being put between the two of them here. 
My hour has not yet come. What does this have to do with you and with me? Jesus is trying to make it clear. He only does what God wants him to do. He can't be manipulated. He can't be manipulated. He can't be manipulated by proximity. He can't be manipulated by friendship. He can't be manipulated by service. He can't be manipulated by blood. In other words, God doesn't owe you something because you're a good person. God will not do things for you because you're a good person. That was the attitude of the elder brother in the story of the prodigal son. All this time, I've been doing all this stuff, and you won't even give me a little goat to have a party with my friends. And what does the father say to him? You know, the father said, we could have used the prodigal son just for this. The father says to him, all that I have is yours. Your brother, who was dead, is now alive and has returned. Come and enter the feast. There's a party going on, and you're out here complaining that I won't throw you a party. The irony of all of this shouldn't be lost on us. There's a party going on. Come and join the party. Jesus cannot be manipulated. He doesn't owe you anything. And appealing to him on the basis of your goodness, if you stop and think about it for a moment, just like a half a beat, is really not the grounds for appeal that you want to be making. It's really not the ground you want to stand on. In verse 5, do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. I like the movie Elf <laughs> when, when Buddy the Elf is like, do you like smiling? Smiling is my favorite, favorite. And his dad says, make work your favorite. Here's what I wrote down about this verse. Make this verse your favorite. Just make it your favorite. Whatever your favorite used to be, make this your favorite. Do whatever he tells you. I don't know what's going to happen in your life. I don't know what the story is going to be. I don't even know for sure how the sermon's going to end because I don't know if I'm gonna keep breathing all the way through it or if God's gonna open my eyes to see something I didn't see before or to tell a joke that I hadn't thought of previously or to take a tangent onto a story or even to keep riffing on this particular paragraph that I'm riffing on right now. I don't know what's going on in my own life, much less in your life. But I can tell you the one guiding principle that you should operate with is do whatever he tells you. Yeah. Your life will be filled with wonder. Your life will be filled with joy. Your life will be filled with purpose. Your life will be filled with meaning. Your life will be filled with friends. Your life will also be filled with hardship, with criticism, and with enemies. But it was going to be filled with that stuff anyway, guys. You're fine. I like funny walks better. <laughs> Make this your favorite. Do whatever he tells you. Verses six through eight. Now, six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. These are big jars. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first. Then, after people are drunk, the inferior, but you have kept the fine wine until now. 120 plus gallons of water, which was used for ritual washing. In other words, this water would be set outside the house. And as the Jewish men and women would enter the home, they would use this water to rinse off their body in attempt to make themselves clean. I will say this. If you go to the bathroom and you don't wash your hands, at least rinse them with water. But can we all acknowledge 
that that alone really doesn't make them clean. You know what I'm saying? Like they have this feeble attempt to make themselves clean. The wedding takes place in Cana of Galilee, not in Jerusalem of Judea. These were not rich families. These were not famous people. They were likely poor and unknown. Jesus could have provided just enough. <clears throat> he could have provided just enough. He knew how many people were there. He knew how much everybody was still going to drink. He could have provided just enough for them to have and to enjoy. That, that would have been completely reasonable, but it's just not his style. That's just not his style. You know what his style is? There's like 20,000 people here. Let's put enough food on the table for everybody, and then let's also put enough so that someday someone will think they should have had Tupperware. I'll invent it. Let's have more than anyone could possibly consume. When the Israelites are in the wilderness and he provides the bread of angels, manna, which in Hebrew means, what is it? What is it fell from the sky? And what is it is what we were eating. They ate it and there was always more than they could pick up. At first they disobeyed God and tried to save it for later, but that's not how it worked. They had to pick it up every day. They had to eat their fill every day. He rained so much quail on them when they complained about not having meat that they ate so much that they made themselves sick. They ate until they were vomiting. And that's still one of my life goals when I find a really good meal is to just eat and eat and eat until it just starts coming back. You know what I'm saying? Like to just push it, to just push past the pain. That's, what they, that's how much he gave them. 120 gallons of fine wine, that's gonna be an insane party. They're already pretty deep into the evening, guys. There's only so much that you can consume. He could have provided just enough, but that's not his style. Jesus is into lavish generosity. Oh man, his mercies are new every morning. His grace is inexhaustible. And one of my favorite words, indefatigable. It's like Drew. You cannot wear it out. It's always ready to go. Yes, I just finished a workout. Now I will work out with you. And then I will work out with someone else. And then I will work out with someone else. And then I will go home to a wife who competes in triathlons. Okay. Jesus will give you more than you can ask, more than you can imagine. So some important notes. Wine in the Bible often represents joy. I'm not gonna walk you through all the passages. It just does. If you don't believe me, look it up and then believe the Bible. Moses' first verification miracle was turning water into blood. Jesus' first verification miracle was turning water into wine. The first was a demonstration of God's judgment upon sinful people. The second was a demonstration of God's grace towards people who needed it. The water was a feeble attempt at purifying a person through external cleansing. The wine filled the wedding guests with joy and delight. The law came first and gave people an opportunity to be the people of God. But what Jesus brought was far better. 
Jesus revealed his glory and the faith of his disciples grew. This is the beginning of faith for his disciples. You understand faith is a dynamic thing. It grows in us. You can be here this morning and be of little faith and know that God will not disdain you for having but little faith. That all who have faith are welcome. He receives us. He wants us. And that he will patiently and persistently provide opportunities for us to both persevere in our faith and to cultivate more faith. Jesus could have done anything, anywhere, for anyone. Isn't that incredible? He could have done anything, anywhere, for anyone. He didn't go to Jerusalem for his first miracle. He didn't go <clears throat> to the biggest, most public place. He went to a rural wedding in Cana of Galilee for his first miracle. Most of the people who were there didn't even know that a miracle had taken place. Have you considered yourself today? Have you considered all of the miracles that you yourself have experienced? That you can see right now is miraculous. That you can hear that your body involuntarily and unconsciously causes all of the motor functions that you're experiencing, allows your brain to understand and perceive what's happening, keeps your heart beating, and does all of the mystical things too, like make you laugh for some reason make you feel? Have you looked in the face of a loved one and thought about the great miraculous gift that they are? To think, ignoring everything else, to think about all the things throughout the course of human history that had to be true for you to even know that person much less to love and to be loved by them. The miracles are always happening. The sense of wonder is sometimes missing. Have some fun isn't our attempt to trivialize the seriousness of life. It's our honest attempt to bring a little bit of light to the darkness, a little bit of flavor to the food, a little bit of color to the sunrise, and to both share and to ease the agonizing burden that is the human experience. I really like the quote that says, be kind because everyone you know is facing a hard battle. in the midst of facing hard battles, we can hold two things at the same time. This is a difficult moment and I can still laugh when something is funny. I'm in a season of pain and loss 
but there's still moments of sweetness in the midst of it. You know, the method that God chose to publish the gospel, the, the good news, it's good news. The method that he chose was the community of faith that we call the local church. It was you and me. We are the method that he chose for publishing the gospel to the world around us, for telling them this is what it is to be a follower of Jesus. This is what it is to have a transformed heart, a transformed mind, a transformed life, to be renewed. This means that we must not be, excuse me, we must not only be formed and filled with truth. We must not only be formed by and filled with truth. We must be transformed into the fullest, most joy-filled and joy-formed people on the face of the planet. We should be the kind of people who are easy to love and easy to enjoy. I just, I love that one of the big criticisms about Jesus was, well, you know, he eats with sinners and tax collectors. This is one of the reasons he's crucified. They criticized John the Baptist because he was a recluse. He was a monk who lived out in the woods and ate bugs and honey and yelled weird stuff at people as they passed by. And they criticized Jesus by saying he was a glutton and a drunkard. People who were far from God wanted Jesus to be present in their homes and in their lives and at their parties. The Bible never explicitly says, Jesus was a really fun guy. But you don't read anything about Pharisees getting invited to parties. You don't ever see them having any kind of fun. I am saying... The human experience is hard enough. It's heavy enough. It's confusing enough. It's difficult enough. There are hard truths about God. There are stumbling blocks on the way to faith. But all of those things that actually are hard things, all of those things that actually are stumbling blocks ought to be the things put there by God. The very best apologetic that we can offer to a world that does not believe is to love and to live well with one another to actually enjoy the life that God has given us. I think a lot of people would probably say that I'm not a very serious person. And I would say to them, comedy is not the opposite of serious. Being trivial is the opposite of being serious. The opposite, by the way, of comedy is tragedy. When I take my life, my calling, my responsibilities, my family, very seriously. But I don't take myself very seriously. And I would rather think of the arc of my story as a divine comedy 
rather than a divine tragedy. I think it's unkind to communicate to people that they, that they should lay down their lives for something that they can in no way see, taste, touch, smell, or feel. I think it's unkind to say that the Christian life is only about enduring until the day that you get relief. Not only do I believe that it's unkind, but I believe that it's dishonest. I believe it's bad theology. Because I believe that Jesus came to give me life, abundant life. I believe that he wants to put the love that God had for him into me and that he himself wants to live in me, that he wants me to know him and to be known by him and that one of his greatest desires is that his joy would be inside of me and that my joy would be complete. I like the story of David dancing through the streets after a great victory and he dances so hard that quite honestly, some of his clothes seem to start falling off in an inappropriate way. It's a real dance. It's, I mean, he's, he's getting down to it. He's, he's playing that funky music, King Boy. Like, it's, it's, it's going down for real. And his wife is like, you know, how very undignified of you. And I imagine she had her pinky out as she sipped her tea and told him how undignified he was. And David's response was, I will become even more undignified than this. You haven't seen anything yet. We're not comics for comedy's sake. We don't tell jokes for the sake of telling jokes. We don't trivialize things that are serious. But we understand, we understand we have an opportunity to lighten the burden. That's the human experience. Have, have some fun is our way of saying that we take life and eternity seriously, but we're not gonna take ourselves too seriously. We're just not going to do it. So we're gonna laugh at ourselves. We're gonna make some mistakes along the way. I'm gonna trip up on words and mix metaphors. And I'm gonna laugh at it and you're gonna laugh at it and every now and then I'm gonna get my feelings hurt because you laughed at it even though I laughed at it too and you're gonna say, don't take yourself too seriously. Someday I'm going to die. None of those things are going to bother me at all anymore. Much less than 2,000 years from now, two days from now, most of the stuff that's bothering me won't bother me anymore. It should fill you with wonder and awe to know that Jesus shed his blood so that you could have eternal life someday and abundant life today. It's miraculous. It's miraculous that the gift isn't just out there waiting for you someday, but that he says, I want to fill you today. I want to meet you in the moment today. I want to have some fun with you today. You do this, you join me in just a moment of reflection. If you want to, you can bow your head, you can close your eyes. If you'd rather not, you don't have to. We're not gonna be checking or anything like that. 
Some of you who are here this morning have been considering whether or not you should give your life to Jesus, and I want to tell you that, you're sh- that you should. You absolutely should. Like if it's something that you've been waffling about, something that you've been sort of dancing between two opinions about, you should do it. That his joy might be in you and that your joy might be complete because Jesus didn't die on a cross so that you could be a sourpuss who's very serious about all things at all times and is unable to enjoy and appreciate a really good meal. Who's unable to appreciate and enjoy a really nice fire. Who's unable to get caught up in the wonder and beauty of a sunrise or a sunset who's unable, unable to see the miracle that is a conversation that's complicated and compassionate. He died on the cross to rescue you from your futile attempts at building a life for yourself and at making yourself pleasing to God. He died on the cross to satisfy the debt demand that your sin created. Your sin. You. Your sin. Mine too. He died on the cross knowing that the thief had come to steal and to kill and to destroy, but that he had come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus said in John 15, 9, as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my Father's commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. We exist for the glory of God and to make disciples by sharing our lives and sharing the gospel. And as we exist, we will experience pain. We will experience loss. If you hang around long enough, if we exist long enough, someone's going to die too soon. Someone's going to be lost to cancer. Someone's going to lose a child. Someone's going to lose a friend. That is the human experience, but that's not the fullness of humanity's experience. The fullness of it is found in a community that loves each other that shares the burden and that understands the importance of taking life and taking eternity absolutely seriously but not taking ourselves too seriously. Glory and dust, the very breath of God and farts.
Isn't it beautiful? Not just that we have this life, but that we have it together. I think it's beautiful. I want to encourage you to give generously out of all that God has provided for you. I want to encourage you to sing loudly. I didn't say well. I said loudly. To honor the one who has honored you. And I want to encourage you to think deeply about this. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the Christian life alone is worthy of being called life. When you're ready, you can respond by taking the elements of the Lord's Supper, thanking Jesus for shedding his blood, not just so that you could have eternal life someday, but abundant life today. In a few moments, the band will come back up. We'll sing together.